Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Nets, Bucks. Somehow, Nets, Bucks went from an absolute bore fest to an actual series. I mean, the Bucks looked like they were dead on arrival. The Nets were looking like a juggernaut. And all of that was maybe, what, five minutes ago? Now, having said that, I am this close to saying the Nets are now in trouble. Not only are they in trouble, I think they're in serious trouble. I mean, do you remember last Monday, only one week ago, the Milwaukee Bucks did look dead in the water. I mean, D-E-A-D, dead, dead, dead. They were down two games to none. And it wasn't just that they had lost the first two games. It's how they lost those first two games. They lost game two by 39. That was a game where they trailed by 49 at one point. The Nets had been up nearly a half a hundred on them in a playoff game. So the Bucks, an alleged title contender, could not have looked any worse. I mean, let me repeat that. They were down 49 in a playoff game. How the hell does that even happen? How does that make any sense at all? Like, the math is all wrong. Then they go back home. They win what amounts to an unwatchable rock fight in Game 3. They don't care. They did what they had to do, but it was unwatchable. And then yesterday happened. A critical game four, and it was a lot, starting with this. Durant being hounded back door to Irving, who lays it in, and then fell hard on his right side, and he's down, holding his right ankle. Connaughton for three is no good. Irving is still down as the Nets get the rebound. Griffin's got it. Irving's holding his right ankle. Sebastian Poirier is going to run out now to attend to him. Nets trainer, Harry Irving, is in pain. He's slamming the floor. Nets radio on that call. Yeah, I'm guessing that felt below average. I would say it looked like he put his foot on backwards, but it actually looked like his foot was ripped off altogether and then placed on the floor next to the rest of his leg. That bad. Like it looked like a shoe had been thrown onto the floor. It didn't look like there was a foot in it or that that foot was still attached to the leg. I mean, it was so gnarly that LeBron tweeted the praying hands emoji at Kyrie, followed by four exclamation points and an all-caps F-bomb. Like, and I get it, because that's about the only reaction you could have to something like that, an injury like that, at a time like that. Well, actually, actually, I'm not right about that. I take that back, in fact. No, I take that back. There is one reaction you could have, and a reaction that's even worse, so much worse, And that reaction came compliments of Big Baby Davis, who posted, quote, That's the same ankle Irving stomp on Lucky with. End quote. Baby. (laughs) Dude, you shouldn't have. And when I say you shouldn't have, I'm asking, are you kidding me with that? You saw what happened to Kyrie. So your immediate reaction is to reach for your phone and thumb that out. Thumbed out some sort of karma blast on Kyrie because he stepped on the Celtics logo a few weeks back? Because that's pretty much what I think you did. And if, in fact, that is what you did, that is maybe the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And by the way, really, really low rent. Because it wasn't just about karma. Like, you were celebrating it. You were hyped that this dude got hurt. Like, hell yes, you know it. That's what happens when you mess with our mascot. Like a mascot that nobody even knew existed like five minutes ago. I mean, dude, do you even hear yourself? Because if you do, then you know how dumb that really sounds. You mess with our mascot, and then you mess with all of us. That's like really one of the more idiotic things I've heard in a while. And then you top that, right? Like Kyrie stepping on the logo was one of the dumber things ever. But the way Big Baby and the other Celtics reacted was even dumber. And that's saying something. You know, follow this logic. Do you realize how childish you have to be to out-childish a grown-ass man and a future Hall of Famer stepping on a basketball logo like he's making some kind of enormous statement? Like, that was really dumb what Kyrie did. Right? I get that. But once that was over, I thought that I would never have to talk about it ever again, except now apparently I do. In other words, you're not helping them, baby. You're hurting them, and you shouldn't be running with that bull crap on social media, man. You're hurting them, bro. 
shouldn't be talking about it on the radio, man. So what am I so worked up about? Why do I care? The thing I care about is rooting for an injury is pretty much the worst thing you can do in sports. It's like a total violation of everything that everybody is supposed to stand for in sports. And every athlete knows this, right? Especially elite athletes. You know the physical risks that everybody takes when they step on the court or they step on the field. These guys know better than anybody what they signed up for. So you want to make sure that everybody comes out safely. You want your best to beat their best. And saying that an injury is karma for stepping on a part of the court is like the dumbest thing ever especially coming from a former pro athlete. Like, you of all people should know. It's one thing if it comes from some anonymous egg on Twitter. But a former player should know better. You don't celebrate somebody's injury. You don't root for somebody to get hurt. And you don't say, I told you so after it happens. Especially if the I told you so is for somebody stepping on a part of a basketball court. But he wasn't done. He followed that up with this, quote, Lucky got his get back. Big Baby said that. Lucky got his get back. Lucky got his get back. The hell are you talking about now? That the Celtics mascot would have a little something for anybody who dared disrespect him? Is that what you're saying? Like the mascot was going to get his. Like the mascot was going to get over on anybody else who disrespected him by wrecking them. That's what you're going with. Dude, it's Lucky, not Chucky. He's a mascot in a vest and a pipe. Not a doll in overalls with a knife. Lucky, I don't know if you know this, baby, but Lucky is a made-up character. Lucky is a marketing gimmick. The dude on the Lucky Charms box is more real and way cooler than some doofus on a painted parquet floor. You don't have to protect the goof with the pipe, the vest, and the black hat. And if you Celtic fans are going to come in here and try and tell me I just don't get it, you're right. I don't get it. That's the whole point. Now, putting all of that aside for a minute, putting aside that terrible take For a minute, why don't we talk about the thing that really matters? The series itself. The series has completely changed. And it shows once again that when it goes, man, it goes fast. And it can all change in a split second. Playoff basketball is always hard. Winning is always hard. But this year, it seems even tougher. An entire series changes based on how a guy lands on the floor. Or how the guy who shoots the ball lands on the ground. I mean, it's crazy, but it's real. And the Nets are in real trouble right now because if Kyrie is out and James Harden isn't right, suddenly that team becomes a lot more beatable. They looked unbeatable only a few days back. Yes, they still have KD, but that's a big one, not a big three. And I'm not going to say that they're about to turn into the Lakers without AD and LeBron, but when you build a team around three guys and two of them aren't there, you know that's a problem. And as great as Durant is, he's not going to put the rest of them on his back and beat Milwaukee by himself. And it's not just about Kyrie's injury. There's something else going on here. The Bucs have found something. And that something is none other than Anthony Leon Tucker, a.k.a. P.J. Tucker, because he has been a force the last couple of games. And it is something to behold, right? Yeah, Durant did get 28. But he needed 25 shots to get 28. He was 9 of 25 from the field. He was 1 of 8 from deep. And Tucker was a big reason for that. So yesterday was a free reminder of why the Bucks brought in Tucker. Because as great a dude as he is, and as great a story as he has, he can still make your life absolutely miserable. He's in the misery business. He's paid to make dudes miserable. He's physical. He'll fight through screens. He'll crack you. He denies you the ball. He makes you fight for everything you get and earn every single inch. And we're talking about a guy giving up a half a foot to Durant. And it's an absolute defensive clinic. Man, there's so few guys in that league that can do that to that guy. He got in Kevin Durant's face in game three. And now officially he's in the Nets' heads after game four. Like Durant spent a huge chunk of game four complaining to the refs about Tucker. Steve Nash even picked it up after the game. You know, he's playing truly physical. 
and, and made it difficult. Um, you know, that's that's his role on their team. And, uh, and I thought it was borderline non-basketball physical at times, but that's the playoffs. You know, you have to adapt and adjust. No, you didn't. You did not think that was borderline non-basketball. Let's be real. Steve, Steve Nash is smart as hell. I really doubt that he thinks that P.J. Tucker was, quote, borderline non-basketball physical. Borderline erotic. I doubt that he thinks that it was borderline erotic. Borderline erotic. Or borderline non-physical basketball. Or physical non-basketball. Or borderline erotic. Borderline erotic. There's nothing borderline about it. He was doing his job. He, Nash, is doing his job too. Working the refs. Trying to get them on inside for game five. And I get it. Because Tucker took Durant out of his game yesterday. Took the Nets out of their offense altogether. This guy's dragged the Bucks back into the series. And if Kyrie and Harden are out, he put the Bucks in the driver's seat. And that's definitely not something I would have said a week ago. As mentioned, like five minutes ago, the Bucks were dead on arrival. And now they're in the driver's seat. As far as big baby. Yo, B. Bitter much? You should change that handle to Big Bitter Davis. Then again, he is what he is. He's not turn the page, Davis. He's not move on, Davis. He's not focus on what you can control, Davis. So running to the store has been pretty stressful of late, right? And there is nothing worse than forgetting something on your list and then needing to make another trip. Shopping for Home Essentials should be easy and convenient. This is where Grove Collaborative comes in. Grove is the online marketplace that delivers healthy home, beauty, and personal care products directly to you. And Grove Collaborative takes the guesswork out of going green. Browse the site for thousands of home, beauty, and personal care products, all guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, and the planet. I love Grove. I want these products. I'm not sure where to get these products, or at least I didn't know until I found Grove. Making the switch to natural products has never been easier, and for a limited time, when you go to grove.co slash roam, you will get to choose a free gift with your first order of 30 bucks or more, but you have to use our special code. Go to grove.co slash roam to get your exclusive offer. That's grove.co slash roam. John Wertheim is my guest. John, good to have you back. How are you? Good. How you doing, Jim? Good, good. John, really interesting book, and I'm eager to talk to you about this. There are a lot of different places we could start, but I want to start with the fact that the advanced praise for the book comes from a lot of respected authors and media outlets, but also from one Ralph Macchio, which is awesome. <laughs> What's it mean to receive love from the Karate Kid for your work? Once you have uh, Ralph Macchio's literary blessing, it's all downhill. But, um, <laughs> no, seriously, he, he was a great... Um, he, he was great to talk to. He, he couldn't have been cooler. And he was really good on there's a Karate Kid chapter and he has a lot of details. But he also was really good just with other thoughts on what made that summer so special. He, he was great. All right. So, John, before we start diving in, you were 13 in 1984. So when you personally think back about that summer, what are the strongest memories that come to your mind? Yeah, I mean, the story is that um, I, I grew up in Bloomington, Indiana, and in the summer of 84, the Olympic team trained there because Bob Knight was the coach, and it was, you know, a sleepy college town in the middle of Indiana, and you'd be bored, so you'd go to the gym to watch Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, you know, Patrick Ewing, and John Stockton practice, and um, it, I, I wrote about it for Sports Illustrated, and that was sort of the jumping off point for this whole book was you know, man, man, it, you know, it was a while ago, but it wasn't that long ago. And man, we're sports in a different time when, when, you know, Michael Jordan was wandering around my town, hoping somebody would drive him to the mall or, you know, t take him to play putt putt. Um, we, we've come a long way in a pretty short amount of time. I mean, that's crazy. Like, so how would you describe, I mean, you started to right there, but how would you describe Jordan back in 1984? And you saw him out and about one point. What happened? Yeah, I, I saw him all the time. I mean, again, it's a, it's a little town, even when the students are there. When students aren't there, it's, it's a ghost town. And I'd see him, and I'd walk around with my, you know, I was a sports nerd and would have my tennis rackets, and he'd call me John McEnroe. And, I, you know, I, I just remember how absolutely cool he was. But I also remember sort of, you know, this, this was kind of a, a happy-go-lucky, maybe a little bit of a lonely kid. He had just decided to turn pro. I mean, he, he wanted to go back to UNC and play his senior year with 
Kenny Smith as his point guard, and Dean Smith basically said, uh-uh, you you got to go to the NBA. Um, I mean, I, I think one of the themes of the book, you know, Jordan started that summer as a sort of sheepish kid, and he ends it with a gold medal. He's the third pick in the draft. David Fox got him this, this crazy Nike deal where he doesn't just get a shoe and a poster, but he even gets his own signature design. And the same way Jordan started that summer in, in a very different place to where he ended it up, that was kind of the theme of the book, that sports uh, was in a very different place in May of 1984 than it was in by Labor Day. This book is called Glory Days, the summer of 1984 and the 90 days to change sports and culture forever. The book comes out tomorrow. You know, John, I could talk to you this entire conversation about Jordan that summer, but there's so much more to it. For instance, what did Bobby Knight think of Michael Jordan at that time? Yeah, for, for all his flaws, Bobby Knight was right on point with Jordan. And uh, he, he was friends with Stu Inman, who was the GM of the Trailblazers. And they said, oh, well, who are you thinking of drafting? Oh, we need a center. And this kid, Sam Bowie, is pretty good. And Knight said, I'm telling you, take Jordan. He said, well, we got Clyde Drexler, and, and you know, we got Jim Paxson. We don't need the swing. And Knight said, he is the best basketball player I have ever seen. Not potentially. I'm saying right now he is the best player. Draft Jordan. Play him at center if you have to. Uh, the, the Blazers didn't, but for, for whatever Bob Knight's flaws uh, may have been, he was really uh, he, he nailed Jordan from the first time he uh, practiced with him at that, the, uh, those Olympic trials. John Wertheim is my guest. So, John, 1984 was also the first meeting of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson in the NBA Finals. How significant a moment was that for the NBA, and then how did that set the stage for the next few decades for the league? Yeah, it, it was also the first few months on the job for this new commissioner who'd been a lawyer and uh, took took over for Larry O'Brien. This guy, David Stern, takes over the job. and He's on the job a few weeks, and he gets a Game 7 with Bird and Magic. My favorite story from that uh, from that series was they, they flew coach back then. <laughs> and, you know, the, the veterans sat in business and everyone else sat in coach. And Pat Riley really wanted to get back to Boston fast for uh, for Game 7. So the Lakers not only flew coach to game seven, biggest game of their season, you know, the decisive game, but they, they took a red eye and they couldn't get a direct flight. So they flew through Washington, D.C. Insane. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, this, this set the thing. I mean, imagine you're David Stern. You get this job, you're the commissioner, you're trying to do all sorts of different things. And this, this league was really the, the fourth of the big four. I mean, even, even in teams where there were hockey teams and NBA teams, the hockey teams outdrew the NBA teams. And you're David Stern, you're a few weeks on the job, you get game seven, you get bird magic, and then like nine days after that, you, you get a draft where Michael Jordan goes third and, you know, Barkley goes fifth. Hmm. Um, and, you, you know, I mean, it's the, the NBA pre-84 and post-84 is a completely different business. Right. I'm jumping around a little bit here, but also in 1984, you've got the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. And I remember that pretty distinctly because I worked those games, John, when I was still at UC Santa Barbara. So there was a venue up in Santa Barbara. So I did work those games, too. For those who do not remember, which city was the other finalist, well, sort of, when L.A. won the right to host the games? And how significant was it that Los Angeles was the host that summer? Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, so, so 76 is in Montreal, and it's, it's fine, but they lose a ton of money. You know, 72, you had the Israeli athletes massacred in Germany. In 80, there was a boycott. No one wants these Olympics. L.A. had to beat out Tehran, Tehran, the capital of Iran, to get the 1984 Olympics. And then, there, you know, the government was overthrown, and Tehran withdrew their bid. So, so L.A. pretty much got the 84 games by default. And this guy no one had heard of, Peter Uberoth, says, you know, we got to start running this like a business. we got to pit these networks against each other for contracts. we got to really go nuts on these sponsorships. we got to have fewer of them, but we've got to have them worth more money. And, you know, the, I would say that the 1980 games in Lake Placid, there were about $10 million in sponsorships. The first deal Uberoth signed in L.A. was with Coke. It was $12 million. So with, with one deal, he did more than the entire – sponsorship of the previous games in North America and the LA games end up making you know, a profit of 250 million. What, one of my, I didn't realize this. One of my favorite stories of this was a lot of that money was reinvested in LA sports. So, you know, R Russell Westbrook ends up playing basketball on a, on a court that was sponsored by the surplus from the 84 games. You know, the Venus and Serena Williams were in a tennis program and that was sponsored by 84 game surplus. And then after 84, obviously, we're in a completely different world with the Olympics uh, 
you know, getting to the point where you would hold the games despite a pandemic in 2021. But I mean, you you look at the Olympics as as a money-making operation and you look at broadcast and sponsorship rights and it really starts in LA in 84. We are talking about a brand new book. It's called Glory Days. It's coming out tomorrow. John Wertheim is my guest. And again, John, I'm jumping around because there's so much in this book. It's not even just about sports. Then you've got some of the pop culture. Like, the sports memories are pretty obvious, but also from that summer, you had Springsteen's Born in the USA. You had Prince's Purple Rain. From a music standpoint, how significant was the summer of 84? I mean, some of it is if you go back and you look and sort of albums came out on Fridays, and it literally was like, yeah, Pur- Purple Rain one day, Ghostbusters soundtrack the next Friday, and the Friday after that, Board in the USA. But, I mean, the other thing that was going on in terms of music was you had this network, MTV, that was doing something crazy and not just playing music, but actually having a video to go with it. It was like a little movie. And it, it was a great business model where M- MTV didn't pay for the videos. The-, the labels and the artists had to deliver them. But 84 was really when you had this explosion of cable and something that really helped pop music was you didn't just hear the, you, know, you didn't just hear Bruce Springsteen, but you saw him and he invites the woman out of the front row to dance with him to you know, dancing in the dark. Um, that was, that was Courtney Cox, a little trivia, but the fact that you had this visual component to music completely changed, you know, the, the rock industry in the mid eighties too. Now, I remember seeing him on that tour. I went to the L.A. Coliseum and sat at the very top, and I'll never forget what that was like. Let me just go back really quickly to the Olympic Games. Part of the 84 games were about technology. There were computers, there were pagers, and more. John, I've told my staff this story, but it's really funny. I used to jump on those computer terminals before we even knew what they were, and I was trying to reach out to people. And again, I was in Santa Barbara, so I'm trying to reach out to people like Howard Cosell and Jim Lampley. If I'm not mistaken, I think when I, I said something to the effect of like, hey, uh, Howard, my name is Jim Rome, and I blah, 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 blah. I would love to meet you for a cup of coffee. I think he corrected my grammar and told me to leave him alone. But it was just so amazing that we could actually use that technology to reach out to other people. How big of a role did technology play in the summer games of 84? Yeah, I mean, again, before 84, they were, like, measuring, you know, the javelin throws with a tape measure. And all of a sudden, they've got technology and IBM and AT&T are sponsors. But what you were talking about... It's really funny to go hear the stories. Um, Jay Billis was also, you know, same about like your age. He was a college kid that was in LA working at the uh, working at the Olympics, and they gave what I think they called an EMS, electronic messaging system, and they were literally like, you don't have to pick up a phone to talk to someone. You can do it electronically and send them a message. Um, Howard Cosell, I'm impressed because mo- most people did not actually activate their password. But basically, this system that you used and, and got a uh, got a response from Howard Cosell. It's a great story. Well, let but me this, tell you something, man. I went with an awesome. email, dude. I went with an email blast before there were emails. I was like hitting everybody up. Exactly. Yeah, I had to, right? So, how do you explain this then? Finally, with everything that was going on across sports, music, entertainment, and more, and it all happened in the same summer. Is it a coincidence, or was there something that happened that led up to all of that and this perfect storm? Oh, man, that, that's a great question, because some of this is just, you know, whatever. It's, it's a wild coincidence that, you know, Don, Donald Trump buys the USFL the same, same summer that, you know, Mike Tyson starts. I, I think the one unifying theme, I think, is cable TV. And David Stern saw it, and Vince McMahon saw it, and to some extent, Uber saw it. And you had this whole universe where now you had another way to expose your product to the world. You know, it's like MTV and the videos. Um, you had another way to get revenue. You had another way to sort of channel your product. Um, and the, the cable, you know, this was a summer where ESPN was sold to ABC and realized that they didn't have to pay the cable systems. The cable systems ought to pay them. And I think the sort of one unifying theme is this was the summer of cable. And for sports, you know, I don't know, we, we see it today, 37 years later, it's still kind of uh, propping up the enterprise. But I think the more I, you know, I didn't know this when I started the project, but as I started to do the research, it became pretty clear that um, c- cable was one of the huge reasons that uh, this was such a pivotal summer for sports. You know, it's crazy, John. You just said it. Thirty-seven years later, it's been thirty-seven years since this. 
You're singing my song. I, I know, know. man. Crazy. I know. I'm not helping him either by bringing that up, but that is amazing. He is a sports illustrator and executive editor. He is a senior writer. He is a contributing correspondent for 60 Minutes, and this is really a fascinating book. It's called Glory Days, the Summer of 1984, Then 90 Days That Changed Sports and Culture Forever. The book comes out tomorrow. John, great to have you back. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed that as always. Oh, thanks, as always. Thanks, thanks as always, Jim. Hey, listen, are you craving some protein after a good workout? This time, do not make a shake. Don't grab a bar. Instead, reach for a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Why Old Trapper? Because Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty. It's tender. It's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. And Old Trapper is a family-owned business. They take their smoked beef extremely seriously. You can taste it in every single bite. Like, who wants dried out, rough, tough beef in a bag? Nobody. It's like eating a shoe. Old Trapper, though, is the real deal. And it comes in four amazing flavors. Old Fashioned, Teriyaki, Peppered, Hot and Spicy. So the next time you want a great protein and energy snack that you can have anytime, anywhere, just grab some Old Trapper beef jerky. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares Old Trapper with your beef. How the hell was your weekend? You know what? Don't answer that because, honestly, I don't even care. I don't care because it is now the week before the week. The week... Before the week of Smack Off 27. So I don't give a damn about your weekend or mine for that matter. I'm looking ahead. Always forward, never back. 11 days, 9 shows. Then it's here. And we have got work to do. It was already a short Smack Off season. If you do not have a golden ticket yet, now is the time to try and rip one. If you do have a golden ticket, now is the time to try to cement it. And if you're in the field and I've not heard from you, now is the time to RSVP. Going back to the good father. If none of that applies to you, but you want some airtime anyway, and you want to be a part of the process, you can. Simply send a 20-second prediction video to smackoffvideos at gmail.com. Smackoffvideos at gmail.com. We will put it on TV these next two weeks. I'm going to carve out some time next week and fully lay out the storylines and all the legacies which are at stake prior to June 25th. But before I get there, let's continue running down what is an extremely deep, extremely strong, invited guest list and do another player profile. Today, I'm throwing it back to a guy who showed up for Smack Off 3. Smack Off number 3. He was on hold for Smack Off 25. The amazing thing is, even with his history on the program, if my data is correct, he's only been in this thing six times. Only six times. And he was in it way back in Smack Off number three. He has hit the podium twice. He is the Motor City's biggest hater. He is the king of the pre-Smack Off call, the king of the post-Smack Off call. He is Gino in San Antonio. Now, depending on how long you've been around here and how long you've been listening, either you know Gino is a longtime caller of the show, an OG, or you don't know this guy at all. Or if you're Justin in Melbourne and you only know him for his annual Monday after the smack off calls and when he phones in to break down the event with a postgame recap, well, then you're that guy. Like, here's Justin voicing his disdain for Gino's act. Man, I'm dreading the numerous phone calls we're going to get from Gino from San Antonio. This guy's act is so predictable. When he blows up the phone lines leading up to the smack-off date, he's got the invite, but goes radio silent day of. But first thing Monday morning, he's back on the phones analyzing what went down. This guy does nothing but spit out more useless takes than a linear messenger system. Wow. No disrespect to Justin, but Justin does not get to be pissed at Gino because he's Justin, and Gino is Gino. And Gino's been calling this show for the better part of a quarter century. Now, I could expound upon that, but Gino called in shortly after Justin and handled his own business his own way. Jason in Melbourne. 
you know, I don't know who this guy is, but I guess he thinks he can go big game hunting with a squirt gun. The problem with hunting for lions, Jacob, is sometimes you run into one, pal. But Jalen, I am impressed. In the four calls that you've managed to call in on, you've highlighted every deficiency in your actual life from cramping up to actually glossing yourself as a lightweight. You know, normally you let the other callers make you look pathetic, but not you, Jamal. Just keep your mouth shut, bro. Anyway, listen, Jerry, you and I both know that you should be happy. I know you are happy right now because I know that you got what you actually wanted. Gino from San Antonio just acknowledged that you exist. Finally, you got something your kids can be proud of. But make no mistake, Jeff, you will never get a seat at the table. Yo, how's that grab you, Justin? Or Jeff? Or Jacob? Or Jalen? Or Jamal? Or whatever the hell your name is? You see, Gino goes back with the jungle to damn near the beginning of it all. Way back to a time when beepers were a thing. And after Alan Rickman, a.k.a. Hans Gruber, passed away, Gino called in to remind me of the history and to pay homage to a show legend. We go back a long way, bro. I know the modern-day clones have no idea who I am other than the guy that took a week off from work just to throw matches at Detroit. But back in the day... I think it's safe to say, and 100% accurate, that I used to call in every week. In fact, I think you don't even know this, but I lost a job selling beepers because of calling into this show. Not pagers, because they hadn't been invented yet, but beepers. And when I heard that Gruber had finally reached the bottom of Nakatomi Tower this morning, I knew that I had to get on the phone with you and pass along my condolences, bro. And I appreciate that very much. You know, that's the kind of thing that you never really get over. You just hope to get past. And Gino understands that. He knows what a deep, deep loss that was for me personally. I mentioned earlier that nobody hates the city of Detroit more than Gino in San Antonio. And that of all the great things that Gino has done on this show, ripping the D for a week straight may have been his Mona Lisa. All right, look, Detroit, you got to know your limitations. You got to know what you're good at. If we were talking about bankrupting the jungle, you'd have me. But this ain't checkers. This is chess. Someday, when your former daughter-in-law drops off your grandkids from her monthly weekend visit, you'll be able to tell them about this. They'll come into the tenement building, their fat little faces all sooty and bruised, and they'll say, Grandpa, Mommy's parole officer told me the Lions never really won four games in the season. Is that true? And after you take a long pull off the oxygen tank, you'll be able to look them in the face and say, Shut your hole and take your Ridlin. I know you're hoping that somebody's going to rise up from the ashes of your once literate city to defend you, but I got bad news. Mitch Album, he ain't walking through that door. Once he realized that the five people he was going to meet in heaven were all wearing Red Wings jerseys, he moved to L.A. And I can't blame him because if things get any worse in your city, the president's probably going to send in Snake Plissken to rescue Calvin Johnson. Face it, the only large society of people with the same values as you are prisoners. We're like brothers now, all right, Detroit? Let's put all this hatred behind us. I think we're good, all right? And I'm glad. I'm glad we're all friends now. Now, listen, I'm going to let you guys go because I know you got to go make a payment on your clothes. All right, peace. Only in Detroit can people buy school clothes for their kids, activate their cell phone, and buy dinner at the liquor store. You know what? I want to take this phone call to just point out some things that, that we have in common. I want to I make a little peace bridge between us here. Let's take your football games with Michigan, all right, the big house. You know? I don't fly to Ann Arbor, and you guys can't afford to go to the games because you spend all your gas money on Molotov cocktails. I mean, this dude, when he's in it and he's feeling it and he's locked in, people get hurt. Like, now, in no way do I share that same disdain for Detroit that Gino does. But that all-out disdain that he has for Detroit is part of what makes this guy the legend that he is around here. Now, I've got no idea if Gino shows up in the next two weeks or day of or day after or when I get back from Wisconsin. I, I never know when he's going to show up. I just know that he has an invite and is welcome around here anytime at all because he makes the smack off and the jungle better. Always has, and I'm guessing always will. And provided he does make a triumphant return, trust me, we will all be better for it, and nobody's safe when that guy's around. 
just know that this guy has seen a lot of things, done a lot of things, and very definitely has a body of work. 30 years from now, when your son picks up, I want to go, hey, Jake, your dad gave me a lifetime exemption, so tell your call screener from Alhambra High to quit jerking me around and put me on the air next time, all right? I've been calling into this jungle so long, I actually remember before faxing existed, when people would actually mail their takes into this show. And the irony is now that everybody I'm hearing calling into the show is mailing their takes in. Shale, listen, you know, there's some things that you just cannot unhear. I didn't get my hands on Mike until after midnight is one of those things. Shale, read your take out loud before you go on the air and see if it still sounds good, bro. Those Canadian boys. Wow. Did I hear that you guys actually met Rich Ackerman? Wow, that is so cool. Last year, I was in a Taco Bell, and one of the Spurs ball boys walked right in. Couldn't believe it. So good for you guys. Rick and Buffalo, why are you screaming all the time, my man? You're not fresh. You're not even the latest person to decide that screaming your phone calls is how you're going to be relevant on the show. Jim in Fall River also tore the volume knob off at 11. And you know what, Rick? You're a lot like Jim. The only difference is he had takes and was funny. And one time he had a donkey on a call. You are the donkey on all of your phone calls, my man. Brad just rolls out of bed and farts in a phone for three minutes wearing the same thong he's been wearing since preschool and cranks out win after win. Ah, I'm just so stupid, Rome. I got it all wrong. I want an informed opinion about something serious going on in sports. It's not coming from Jay Moore. The smack-off is for those souls who dare to put themselves out there on the line and risk defeat for the chance at glory. And I salute everybody that has ever called into the smack-off. I'm telling you, man, Gino, different dude. And again, again, I have no idea whether or not he's going to call or not. But I do the player profile because I'm trying to get this guy to call. I want this guy to be a part of it. If you're not hyped for what's about to go down in 11 days, then allow Dr. DeLauro to hit you with the paddles. Doc? 27. Where were you in 1995? JT the Brick ripped the initial crown. The greatest city, the deepest tradition, and the best smack comes from New York and the Brick. Where were you in the year 2000 when Doc Mike became the first ever two-time champ? Other children. Dude, 8 is Enough was only a TV show. And put your back where it belongs and mix in a contraceptive. Where were you in 2010 when Vic and NoCal officially became Broadway? I'm the single most influential force in the jungle in the past 20 years. Everywhere you look in the jungle, you see my influence. Where were you in 2014 when Mike and Indy and Chael Sonnen split the title? If I tell you the moon is made of cheese, you can get you some crackers. What if I tell you two of America's most wanted are in the same mother place at the same mother Time. In 2015, where were you when Lef in Laguna went household buzzing my tower? Jim, that blue chopper right outside the window, that's me. Riding shotguns, Randall, he washed your windows four weeks ago. Where were you in 2016 when Brad in Corona committed jungle suicide? Okay, so Najee Davenport, Peppermint Patty, and an uncircumcised Euro walk into a laundromat. Smack off 27, Friday, June 25th, 2021. If you win it, you get five grand and you're a legend. It's go time. It is now officially Smack Off season. I created Smack Off season. Cal in Vegas. I have to go. I got an elevator full of women coming up here to see me. The Smack Off on the three minute man, but in the bedroom, I'm all night. Benny in Wisco. Does Jeff in Southfield just look around his apartment and write a script based on what he sees? Softball. Bacon bitch, medium-sized cat turd. Pack a snorkel! He is Jeff in Southfield. Hey, Trapper, rest in peace. And what I mean by that is stay in your coffin and shut up. I afraid he. So time to take all those scripts to the shredder, clonies. Hop on the moral bulldozer or get bulldozed. From Richmond, Jeff. The only legitimate sports radio. God! King Kong ain't got nothing Oh me. Caleb. Caleb versus everybody. I don't want sympathy. I don't want to pity party. Take your best shot, tough guys. I'll see you in my driveway. It's a walrus game. And nice work, Caleb. That gimmick was almost as bad as your diet. Mark in Boston. Caleb always loves his tube sock. Mike and Indy. Then the Stuck Nut smack off odds come out and Mark in Boston is ahead of me and I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. So Stuck Nut is cut off. And Mark, I know you didn't create the Stuck Nut odds, but you're cut off too, bitch. 
Bye-bye. Rick in Buffalo. Unworld grown men who say their fathers are their best friends. Get some real friends, you friggin' losers. He is Mark in Hollywood. Little bitch, little bitch, little bitch left is gone. He's on that dirty mattress and he'll be there all night long. Mark, if you read your Hollywood scripts half that well, you might be able to land a gig better than dressing up like the Statue of Liberty during tax season. Sean, the Kaplan Asian. Left in Laguna, quote, the week or two before the smack off, I go Dude, through all my notes. this isn't your radio show. Rome has sponsors. Come on, man. We can't just spend all the time we want reading articles because we got no commercial breaks. <laughs> I was winning the smack off back when the show was four hours long and Jim and Fall River had livestock giving birth in the background of his call. The B-I-C. Guys, let me explain something to you. It is impossible for me not to punch down. When you're me, everyone is down, okay? I just punch. He's a three-time champ left. I hate Brad and Corona so much, I hope he has a heart attack next time he plays charade. I'm all ears. Johnny, my biggest concern, whoever was staying in that hotel room below yours, wondering if the bed Big Sean is making love on is going to come crashing through the ceiling like you're the Kool-Aid guy. Oh, yeah. Get up in here, rip your golden ticket. In a custom fit, 4XL Tommy Bahama. It's a dynasty clone! Clean my toilet, son. I got to get down to four. 40 or they're gonna turn me away. You impregnated a sock to the point where a god up said thank you for my life. I'd like to really, uh, my dog's barking. Hey, Paul Strong, you need to grow up here. I gave you a date. Clean it up, Jeremy. Whoopee. You need to reinvent yourself as a decent caller. Come on. The Smack Off 27. The tradition continues. Dude, that guy gets more ass than Kelly Clarkson's Lazy Boy. Friday, June 25th. <laughs> That's not a good call. Uh, <laughs> Go time. Get at it. Can't wait. Come on. That promo is getting better and better and better. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online. So any small business could be a driving force to create change or build an empire. We know old ideas aren't cutting it anymore. So we're calling for a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. So whatever you have in mind that will help make a different future, find everything you need to get started at GoDaddy.com. Because the future isn't decided yet. It's up to us to make it happen. Start different at GoDaddy.com. Denny Hamlin is my guest. Denny, good to have you back. How are you? Doing good. Good. Glad that you're doing well. You're doing all right. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I've got you. Sorry. Okay, good. Just want to make sure. So let me ask you something. Before we get into preparing for Nashville and your work for this week, can you take me back to yesterday? Because I saw you had an Instagram story that had you sharing some pancakes with a critter on the porch. Who was that, and how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's been a fox. It's been We've seen them kind of walking around our house uh, here and there. But, you know, I walked out the front door, and, there he was sitting on the couch right outside the front door. So we, we just wanted to see kind of how close we could get. And we figured out pretty quickly that he was hungry and he was willing to come right to us to get some food. So it worked out perfectly. Good. I'm glad because I wasn't sure exactly what that critter was, but now I am clear. So that breakfast actually took place before the All-Star race. What was the All-Star experience like for you and for your team? You know, it was we actually ran pretty decent. We we got a bad draw at the beginning of the race. You know, it was a very it was a random draw of where you started, but we um, you know, we started pretty far back. I think we were second to last or something like that. But we worked our way up to the front and starting, you know, probably mid point of the race, and we kept working our way further forward each each segment. Um, but ultimately, just did not have the speed that that the Hendrick cars had, uh, and you know, we just we came up short, and then we had to pit on the last lap to tighten some loose lug nuts that way we didn't have a a fine or you know get the crew chief suspended we're talking to denny hamlin all right then so you lead the standings and you've been stacking top fives and top tens throughout the entire season what has been the key to that level of consistency this year well it really started early in the year for us um you know that's where we we hit our stride was really for the first 10 races we were you know what i thought was probably the best car week in week out I don't know that we're really at that stature right now. Um, we're probably, you know, the third or fourth best car week in, week out. But, you know, we're still we're still consistent. But it's the race wins that really what we need. 
um, to get some playoff points, and we're working on it each and every week. We just got to get our cars a little bit better. We're talking Danny Hamlin. I mean, clearly, you're doing everything you can, so I'm curious about that part of it. Like, you're still looking for your first one of the season. When you've had the career that you have had and you've won the races that you've run, do you feel any pressure to get that win, or are you confident that it's just a matter of time and you know it's going to come? Well, it is going to be a matter of time. You can't put yourself, continue to be in the top five, top three each week and not win. I mean, it's just it, law of averages says that you're, you know, things are going to fall your way eventually. Um, we've had certainly some races this year where we've been dominant and didn't seal a deal at the end. Um, you know, but, but here lately they've been a little bit fewer and far in between. But I, I still feel like, you know, we can win any given week, and that's all you can ask for is to have a shot at it. Um, again, we're still on top of the standings leading, so, you know, continue to try to build that momentum towards the playoffs. That's when it really counts and when you really got to be on it. We're talking to Denny Hamlin. And Denny, you and I have talked in the past about the fact that you started a new team with Michael Jordan. Now that that team is up and running, what's that been like for you this year? And what's it like to add Cup Series team co-owner to your resume? It's been fun. I mean, you know, for me, it, it, it takes a lot of time. I mean, certainly I've, I've got my schedule full with the sponsors and obligations that I have. Um, on my driving side, but now I've got them on the ownership side as well. And, you know, there's a lot of meetings, a lot of board meetings, you know, head, head of competition meetings and, and things that I have to do, um, decisions that have to be made on the ownership front. Um, you know, there's, it's just a lot of work. And for me, it's, it's kind of compartmentalizing all that time to figure out, you know, what do I need to prioritize at what time to, uh, to make sure I'm doing both jobs to the best of my ability. Hmm. You know, there's a really interesting note that when somebody walks into the team's headquarters, there's a trophy case behind the receptionist's desk, and the case itself is empty. Between you and Jordan, there are plenty of trophies that could go in there. So why is that case empty? Well, we keep it empty for a simple reason. That's we got to earn it. <laughs> there's no past success that means you're entitled to anything today. So. We have to go out there, and that team has to earn its own trophies, and you know, not just rest on the laurels that you know myself and Michael have accomplished in our career. So, we want them to see that empty case and, and want to fill it up themselves. We're talking to Denny Hamlin for a couple of more moments. Denny, one of the things that you've talked about in the past is that when everything shut down during the pandemic, you kind of got a glimpse into what life would look like after racing. What was that like, and what was your biggest takeaway from that experience? Yeah, I mean, that's essentially when I decided to start a race team is, you know, we're sitting around for eight weeks during, you know, lockdown for the country. And and I'm thinking, well, is this what retirement is like? You know, middle of the summer and, you know, I got nothing nothing going on. And, um, you know, I was like, you know, I can't golf every single day. So I figured, you know, I, I needed to have a job and, and something that I'm passionate about. Obviously, racing is something I've been doing for a really long time. So, um, it's a it's a sport that you know I, I kind of know the business of, and I felt like you know team ownership was maybe a, a place I wanted to be. And you know, luckily I had great partners and founding partners that sponsored our our, our car with Bubba Wallace in our first year, and Toyota is, is staying behind us and and backing us uh, going forward. So those are the key things that you got to have to have a successful race team, and, and right now we have them. Like, for instance, is there anything better than calling you a shot? Anything better than telling the world exactly what you're going to do and then going out and doing it and backing it up? As an example, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., son of a legend and an ultra-hyped minor league phenom who was called up to the Blue Jays back in 2019. Now, the first two years of this guy's career did not go exactly as planned. The guy who mashed baseballs... In the lower levels, look like a semi-bust who was more interested in mashing potatoes and then covering them in shredded cheese and bacon bits and then drowning them in butter and then injecting the creamy goodness straight into his veins or using it as an IV drip for breakfast, lunch, dinner, dinner, and a fourth meal. Imagine like... The medic's hooking him up to that plastic bag of mashed potatoes and gravy. Vladdy Jr. looked more like Carl's Jr. 
Vlade Jr. was Fatty Jr. And Fatty Jr. struck out a lot. He didn't walk nearly enough, could not put the ball over the fence like he did in the minor leagues. Things were not going well. Then earlier this year, back in February, my man hopped on the accountability train. He told the media that he came to his first two big league spring trainings out of shape, underprepared. He said that he apologized to his teammates and that he lost, wait for it now, that he lost 42 pounds, 42 freaking LBs. That's four gallons of paint. Imagine that. Imagine shedding four gallons of paint off your frame because that's exactly what Vladdy, the former fatty, did. And he said, said he felt all sorts uh, better, faster, stronger, quicker. He had less fatigue, felt more explosive. I mean, just all across the board, much, much better. Now, one thing to say that you were going to do something like that, but entirely another to back it up. And then to back it up by going on the field between the lines and making it happen. And if you check this guy's act out lately, I mean, straight up stupid. 21 dongs, 55 runs batted in, and he's batting 344. At a time when pitchers are loading the baseball up with anything and everything they can. The taters and the ribs lead all the baseball. The average is second. Good enough to lead the entire American League, though. Which means Vlad could win the Triple Crown if he held on to the top spots in those three categories in the American League the rest of the way. Sure, it's a big ask. But we're already halfway June, or halfway through June, and he's putting up these kinds of numbers. Yes, there's a long way to go. But when you're talking about something that's only happened 12 times in the history of the sport... And you're talking about something pretty special. Yes, there is a long way to go. Yes, maybe I should not be mentioning him alongside people like Mantle, Gehrig, Teddy Bompop. But if we are talking about that and those names come up, then dude is raking. And that's just it, right? Vladi is a straight up rake right now. Leads the entire show in on-base percentage slugging percentage, total bases, OPS, and war. So he's not just a masher. He's a nerd's dream baseball player right now, checking all the dork boxes. The rare guy who looks good on the field and in the computer algorithm. And remember who his dad was, a guy who would swing at any pitch he could actually see. Let me check out this line for the month of June. Five dongs, 13 runs batted in, 447 average. Is that any good? So Vlad, the inhaler of fatty foods, is now Vlad, the impaler of baseballs. And he's doing it once again when pitchers are openly cheating with a rock that baseball allegedly deadened. So as Matt Stafford would say, yeah, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. You're deadening the baseball and letting pitchers just put whatever they want on the ball at this point. Load it up with anything and everything. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. And then look at Vlad calling his shot, came into spring training, talking about accountability, responsibility, owning it, apologized to his teammates for being fat. Dropped 42 pounds, told everybody he was better, stronger, faster, full of energy, and now he's backing it all up. Gotta love it. Gotta love to see it. Kevin Ioli is my guest. Kevin, good to have you back. How are you? I'm great, Tim. How are you doing? Good, good. So, Kevin, you and I spoke three months ago after Israel Adesanya lost in his attempt to move up to light heavyweight. He was back in the cage on Saturday. Let's start right there. What were you looking to see from him going into that fight, and then how did he show out to you? Well, you know, I grade him as an A because uh, what we were looking to see was could he improve his takedown defense. I mean, the Achilles heel he had in that fight against Jan Blahovich was the fact that he couldn't get up when he got taken down or he couldn't prevent takedowns in the first place. He was fighting uh, a guy that had a wrestling-heavy style in Marvin Vittori, and that was going to be the question in this fight. If Vittori was going to win the fight, or more appropriately, I guess, if Adesanya was going to lose it, it was going to be the fact that he got put on his back uh, repeatedly in the fight. And while he got taken down a couple of times, when he did get taken down, he got up very quickly, unlike when uh, Jan Blahovich had him down. 
um, that allowed his striking to take over. And so, I, I, as I say, I grade him an A. I think he did a really, really good job in terms of shoring up what was a glaring weakness and I think still would be listed as the weakness of his game, but certainly it's not as bad today as it was the Monday after uh, the fight in February. No doubt. I agree. Kevin Ioli is joining us. So I'm going to jump around a little bit here, Kevin, but Brandon Marino became the first Mexican-born champion in UFC history with his win on Saturday. Obviously, that's a huge win for him, but when you consider the fact that he is now the first Mexican-born champion, what does that mean for the entire sport? I think that is so huge for the sport because, number one, uh, the, the Mexican people love the fight game. And having one of their own now being a UFC champion is just going to uh, help in so many ways. You know, one thing it's going to do is it's going to make some kids who would have otherwise gone into boxing consider MMA and go into MMA. It's going to raise the level of talent in that country, which will then raise the level of interest in it. And I think now this makes them, when they go to Mexico, you know, they can put a championship fight on with somebody from their own country. The other thing from the UFC standpoint, if you look at it, Jim, you know, they have had trouble getting the flyweight division to take off. They had Demetrius Johnson, you know, arguably the greatest champion at the time. Um, he was such a tremendous fighter as the flyweight champion. It just did not, it almost folded the division. Now they have somebody who, in Mexico, they like those lighter weight fighters, where in the U.S. we tend to like the bigger weight fighters. So now all of a sudden, you know, it's going to benefit in the you know, U.S. as well because it'll allow the development of the flyweight division. They might get more and better talent overall in the division because it's getting attention uh, from where the champion's from. So I think there's so many benefits to it. Right, and he's got tremendous heart. He's got a great personality, which brings me to my next thing. Leon Edwards beat Nate Diaz. Kevin, I know you spoke yeah. to Nate before the fight. I spoke to Nate before the fight. You've been around the combat game a long, long time. How would you explain the absolute love and affection that the fans have for Nate Diaz? Well, I think it was explained in the fifth round when he did what he did. Uh, Lance, a, a slap, you want to say in jab, but he slaps Leon Edwards in the face, comes back with a straight left hand, and almost puts him down. You know, Diaz had blood from, what, three or four cuts on his head. Uh, his leg was just kicked to death. He could barely walk, was limping. Um, and he still, he never gave up. He just kept coming, and he tried to find a way to win. And, you know, he is, as the fans say, he is so real. Uh, he is what he is. I mean, there's no pretense for him. And I, I did a story, and I had an anecdote, and it was about his brother, Nick. But I think this is why both of them are so popular. And uh, uh, Nick had been uh, out of the game for about three years at this, this time this happened, Jim. And Hunter Campbell, the USC's chief business officer, gets a call uh, from Nick. And Hunter is the guy that uh, a lot of times makes the fights and starts to negotiate the deals with the fighters. And Nick says, hey, I want to come back and fight. And Hunter says, great. Who do you want to fight? And he says, well, I want to fight Daniel Cormier. Mm. And he said, well, you know that you're a welterweight and Daniel Cormier is a heavyweight. And Nick says, but I'm a G. That's what I do. And, uh, you know, I think that kind of really summarizes why both the Yes brothers are so popular. They don't care who it is. They will literally fight anybody at any time. It's incredible. But what about Nick then? To your point, Kevin, now it's been six and a half years since he's yeah. fought. And everybody wants to know, are you going to fight? There's been some rumblings. Can you see him fighting this year? I personally find it hard to believe. You know, you look at six and a half years and the game has changed so much. The quality has changed. And what, how good can he be six and a half years in? Uh, if he didn't do it any of those times when he had opportunities, why would he do it now? But Dana White said, uh, and, 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 um, and looks the way it's going that he may do it. So, uh, you know, with Nick Diaz until he actually makes the walk and steps into the cage, I'll never believe it. But, uh, you know, it's looking a little better now than it, uh, than it did, uh, any time, I think, in the previous six and a half years. So, Kevin, what about Nate? Man, can I love Nate so much, but where does this leave Nate? He's made it pretty clear he's not going to fight just to fight or just fight anybody, but he says he wants to fight again. What would be the next most likely fight for Nate? To me, the fight that makes the most sense uh, would be Conor McGregor. Win or lose against Dustin Poirier, that's uh, July 10th in Las Vegas. UFC 264. I think that's the fight that makes sense. You know, they're both going to be on a very similar schedule. Um, they they they've split a series one to one. 
Um, they are arch rivals. Uh, they, you know, I, I think that is the fight that makes the most sense. Uh, I, I, I certainly think there's other ways that they can go. And the fact that Nate can move up and down, um, in different weight classes would make, make a difference too. You know, I think that they could, uh, look at somebody like a Tony Ferguson, you know, going back to, to fight him. I mean, that would be a, a crazy fight if they could pull that off. But I, I think Conor and McGregor, Jim, is the fight that makes the most sense and is the one that the UFC would look to put on, regardless of what Conor does uh, with Dustin in that uh, uh, trilogy fight on J- July 10th. All right, so Kevin, i got to know, because of who you are and what you represent in this industry and that you've covered both MMA and boxing for a long, long time, more and more fights between YouTubers and YouTubers and YouTubers and MMA guys and YouTubers and TikTokers. What do you make of all this? You know, it's it's a good way for guys to make money, but I, I don't think it's doing the sport any favor, right? I don't think it's hurting it. It's not, you know, tearing the sports apart. But certainly, you know, we don't see, you know, YouTubers jump into an NBA game and play in the NBA Finals, right? We just don't see that happening. And I, I don't understand why, you know, why what people's interest in this are. Of course, you know, these guys... Uh, you know, are popular, but they're, they're not professional fighters, you know, and so I think it's going to, the course is going to, you know, wane uh, here fairly soon, because really, to me, the only people that are are fans of this are the people that are fans of the specific YouTube or TikTok stars, and I think eventually that, you know, like if Jake Paul beats Tyron Woodley, I think, okay, he's proven his point, you know, he can box a little bit, Uh, UFC fighters aren't boxers, let's move on, and if he doesn't fight boxers, I think that, you know, it'll just kind of drip away. I'm happy that, you know, somebody like Floyd Mayweather can make money off it, or any of the guys, you know, Woodley, whatever he's making, but I I just don't think it's uh, anything that really serious fans care too much about. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I, I tend to see it the same way, but then a part of me is like, hey, Jay, and I'm not here to be critical of Jake Paul. I mean, it's brilliant what he's doing. Of course. But, I mean, why not take a shot at Nate while you're at it, Jake? You think he wants any part of Nate Diaz? No, not a, not a chance. I mean, not a chance, know, right? Hey, look, any fighter that's in his prime, it's a real fighter. I mean, you know, hey, I think Jake has some talent as a boxer. Right? I, do I, I really do. But, you know, if he were a boxer right now, he would be fighting guys that, you know, are very low on the totem pole in the boxing world. So, you know, he, the fact what what he's doing is he's spun it and he's going in and fighting, you know, retired UFC fighters and over-the-hill UFC fighters to make a lot of money where he wouldn't be making that kind of money fighting the, the you know, the, the boxers that he's uh, so brilliant on his part. But, yeah, I don't think it's uh, there's, there's much there. No, it, it's brilliant. It's brilliant on his part, but I don't think he wants any part of Nate Diaz at all. No. He covers MMA and boxing for Yahoo Sports. He is a legend of that game. Good friend of the program. Kevin, great to have you back. Thank you very much for that. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it, bro. Hey, Kim, how are you? Hey, Rome. Hey, I truly appreciate the airtime once again. You know, I thought about it and realized my last call came up shorter than Count Vegas standing at a sportsbook ticket counter. And since he likes to take bets, I put money down that you could see his shoes and his driver's license photo. And while on topic, how about every other lady clone's call in the last few weeks? You got that Oompa Loompa sounding Susie with her moxie reading the encyclopedia and Kathleen drunk and barefoot stumbling her way through her moonshine filled rants. And then there's that cringy, creepy stalker in West Virginia. You gotta watch out for her, Jim. First, you're eating potato soup, and before you know it, Melissa has you screaming for your life at the bottom of a well in her basement. I can just hear her now. It puts the lotion on the skin, or it gets the hose. And as far as creepy goes, I must respond to Johnny in Texas and that little ugly blast he lobbed at me. Johnny's face is so wide, his Tinder subscribers have to swipe left twice to get him off their screen. Jed has an outside sales job, but what he fails to mention is that it involves standing outside Bob's Big Boy in red and white checkered overalls, holding a giant burger in his hand. But that's enough for the B-listers. I want a piece of the big time. I'll rip Cal off his hobby horse and beat America's fat out of Matt in Vancouver's mouth with him. I'll smash the Cabellan Asian and Rick and Buffalo's bald heads together and make an ass out of them. I want to see at the table, Jim, and I think you can get me there. I'll do Mike and Indy so wrong, he'll be begging for a right. I'm putting everyone on blast, because hell hath no fury like Lady Clone scored. Kim in Sacramento. Wow. All right, no matter what, you're going to rack her. Question right, becomes, is she watch list material, or do I just give her that golden ducket right now? How about Kim getting up off the mat and cracking skulls? 
or knocking them together to make an ass. Hey, Melissa, what's up? Hey, Jim. How are you doing? I'm great. How you doing? Oh, I'm a little peeved right now, but Kim can talk some and you are a little peeved huh she sounded mad didn't she she sounded mad and she sounded comfortable how comfortable melissa in west virginia just went four letter bomb in her first sentence she sounded like kathleen in omaha and my favorite part about kathleen she never ever addresses me Watch this. Watch me Jedi mind trick her. Hi, Kathleen. How are you? Kim and Southfield, moonshine, really? I pride myself on the fact that I never touch alcohol a day in my life, not even when I was 21, and I'm 31 now. You, on the other hand, are an alcoholic frog, and all that alcohol is going to send you to an early grave, and I will be waiting right there with the first shovel full of dirt to throw on your grave, you nasty piece of roadkill. Um, Racker? Wow, Kathleen. Oh, my goodness. Kathleen. So let me decode that for you and translate that very quickly. Kathleen says because she was accused of being a drunk, or I don't remember exactly what she said, but Kathleen said, I've never had any alcohol, not one drop of alcohol, not even when I turned 21, and now I'm 31. You, on the other hand, did she call her an alcoholic frog? Margo, hi. Hello. Hello. And happy, hey, happy Father's Day to you and the rest of the clones out there. Because I don't know if I'll get to say it, but so great to see you. And Jim, I also have a cute little Father's Day story for you. And no, CJ, it's not the bills are choked because you're that guy. A few weeks ago, the cerebral stoner from Frisco stated he was glad to see the lady clones being on point lately. We being myself, Bella B, Ms. Nika, and Kathleen. Um, CJ, you belong in one of the old Dick and Jane books with your fourth grade level smack. Remember, Jim? See Dick run, run. See Jane play, play. CJ doesn't ride the Bart. Bart being quoted as hot lunch, poop smear, heroin express. That clone is a dumpster fire. But CJ doesn't worry because CJ lives in a suburb. Suburb. CJ has a car, car. CJ gets beat by Rick and Buffalo. Hey, hey, let's go, Buffalo. And one last thing, CJ, CJ, keep the hello out your mouth. War Lady Clones, War Bills Mafia. Thank you, Margo. Uh, there's not anybody anywhere who had any idea what you were talking about, except me, kind of, sort of. Good night now.